In my very first professional programming job, I had to write a financial report, the heart of which was an SQL query. So I worked and I got it working and I was very proud of myself until we ran it against the staging data set and it ran like an absolute slug. And then a more senior colleague of mine said, put an index on it. And I did. And it was fast. Brilliant. I now knew how to make databases run fast. You throw indexes at them. So I started throwing indexes at everything. And wouldn't you know it, the staging database starts slowly grinding to a halt. Perhaps you've already diagnosed why. But that was my first real-world experience of if you actually want things to work properly, you have to understand a layer beneath. You have to understand something of how things work under the hood. So this week's kind of fun because we're meeting someone sort of coming in the other direction. I'm joined by Hannes Muleisen. He is a professor and a database researcher. But as you're about to hear, he's absolutely not content to remain studying theory. He's come out of that ivory tower and he's built one of my favourite new discoveries of late, DuckDB. Came recommended by a few colleagues of mine, and I've been really liking it. It's a local, convenient analytics database. It's fast. I like it enough that I should tell you this episode isn't sponsored by them. I just thought it was good. So I wanted to peel back the covers and understand something of how it works. And it turns out to be quite a treat. And Hannes is very good at explaining it. If you're curious about how a database can chew through a billion rows in a few seconds, or how you parallelize queries across multiple cores, when multiple cores seem like the only way that computers are going to get faster anymore, Hannes is your man. He's an excellent teacher. So let's go and hear from him. I'm your host, Chris Jenkins. This is Developer Voices. And today's voice is Hannes Muleisen. My guest today is Hannes Muleisen. Hannes, how are you doing? Uh, very good. How are you? I'm very well. I'm very well. You're going to take me all the way down into uh, bits and bytes today. It's my favorite uh, things fun. to talk about, like uh, th these bits. I don't know what's what, what, what you know what's so great about them, but somehow they haven't kept me. They have kept me occupied for a while. They've been drawing us down since at least the fifties, right? So, but. I want to get into your background first, because I have to understand why it is you wanted to create what you created. My background is, uh, yeah, that's very interesting. Um, well, I guess not. It's a super vanilla of, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, sort of timeline. No, I, at some point in, uh, in, in my life, I found computers. It was like 14 or something like that. Uh, and there's a fun story that I want to tell. Uh, uh, so I had a computer that I, my dad sold me. Okay, because he's a good businessman. Um, <laughs> it was discarded old computer, and uh, it had a BIOS password. If you remember those set on it, oh, yeah, yeah, I yeah, do. yeah. And he didn't know anything about computers, and I didn't know anything about computers. But I just had spent all my money on this thing that had this. Like you turn it on, and it showed you this password prompt, right? Your dad sold you a brick. <laughs> he did. He did. And he's. I'm telling you, he's a good businessman. And then, and then it's like, yeah. Okay, what's this password prompt? And there was no internet. People today cannot, you know, like, like conceptualize this anymore. But it's like there was no internet, so you can't just Google how to reset BIOS password. You couldn't just go to the library; they didn't know either, right? Yeah. So at some point, you know, you found somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody who tells you, like, <laughs> take the damn battery out. 
Uh, and um, and I think that's that's kind of I, I, I don't know it, it, this, this kind of way of thinking about problems um, that they are just like a challenge and uh, they're just there to sort of you know to be overcome and not something that you could that you have to give up on. Like maybe it was lucky that the first problem was actually solvable. But uh, uh, yeah, yeah. So your dad actually sold you sold you a puzzle box and a career at once. Kind of, yeah. And so so then when you know I started programming like many kids with PHP and MySQL. I was mm-hmm. the fo- one of the founding members of my hometown's my hometown's MySQL user group. Oh, cool! <laughs> uh, I had a license plate with SQL on it because I lived in Stuttgart, and German license plates start with S. So <laughs> you're my kind of geek. Ah, uh, it's very bad. And um, and then and then I when it, you know I needed to study something, so I was like, all right. I was looking to forestry for a while. Uh, okay. Looking for a naval career, but then was like, fine, I'll study computer science. <laughs> And, uh, and yeah, so I did that and then liked it, went, mm. uh, went to Berlin, got my PhD in computer science. And What's then your PhD? My PhD is in, uh, it's about distributed query processing, which is kind of ah. the, the anti-tema of what we're going to talk about later, which is, uh, <laughs> it's uh, sometimes interesting to see, you know, how, how, how careers kind of go. So then I came to Amsterdam after the PhD a um, bit of an accident, kind of, because uh, I didn't come here for like career reasons. I came here because I had a girlfriend here. Oh. And then I was like, okay, so I better find a job. So I looked around and it turned out that there was one lab, the Dutch, the Dutch National Research Lab for Computer Science and Mathematics, okay. uh, that was hiring in a database group. And I thought, oh, I wasn't in my SQL, you know, user group. I'm, yeah. I could do this. And I could of query. Course, of course, in a gigantic overinterpretation of my own knowledge, you know. Because, <laughs> anyways, it turned out this group is actually was actually very good at data systems, at coming up with new ways of, to construct data systems. And so, joined as a postdoc, stayed well, like a tenure track, the whole thing. Mm. Um, yeah, and uh, ended up to be a, a very a place where very clever people have been thinking about data systems construction. For quite a long time for over like 20 30 years oh wow and yeah. i learned a lot about the fundamentals of how we do querying yes um although in cs you always have to be careful when someone says fundamentals because <laughs> they often they mean that they want to hurt you with greek symbols <laughs> okay uh, i am not i am not about the greek symbols i want to make this absolutely clear i'm a painfully practical person um, it's so practical that I always, um, wonder what I'm actually doing in academia. It's like, <laughs> I was wondering a lot what I was actually doing in academia. It was just like, we're not, like, people literally told me, it's like, we're not here to solve problems. We're to- here to talk about problems. It's like, <laughs> oh, that's, yeah. that, that's rather cynical, but I, I don't know. I remember, yeah. So anyway, so the, the, the fund, fund, you said fundamentals, that's absolutely right. We, we learn a lot about the fundamentals. But not in the way that some people might think fundamentals, as in like you know, formulas and proofs and these kind of things. It was more like, no, here's a modern computer works, and here's how you have to sort of hold this computer funny so it actually solves data problems efficiently. So that's right. that was really all that was about. It's fundamentals. Yes, it was about query processing, you know, memory pattern, access patterns, that sort of thing. We can we will probably go into that more later. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah, and then okay. Yeah, that was the academic. Then I got I even became a professor. I am still a professor. 
ja, uh, on, 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 officially on data engineering at the University of Nijmegen. I'm also still affiliated with the lab, the database architectures research group at the Research Institute. But these days I spend a lot of my time at uh, DuckDB Labs, the company that we spun off at some point from the Institute around DuckDB project that uh, we okay, started Take there. me through that. How do you go from being a professor to being an OLAP database writer? Aha. Um, practical OLAP data, because that's a real gap between professor and... Uh, I mean, professor that programs is almost unheard of, okay? Yeah. This, this is, again, it's, you can call me cynical again if you want. And it's only been like five minutes of podcast, but uh, <laughs> but uh, professor that programs is pretty uncommon. Um, yeah, so how does this happen? Well, I think in data systems, it's you can write papers, but it's kind of understood that a lot of your impact will derive from have you actually created any systems that are sort of relevant in the world out there, right? Have you created software? I think it's unusual. It's very unusual. Academia, the writing it's, of software is, seem, is yeah. just, you know. Yeah, it's not it, respected a lot. It's the, the turning of the handle that gets you to the paper. That, yeah, um, it's true. It's not respected a lot. And it's also the quality of software produced in academia is also typically very bad as a result. Because mm. it's just, as you said, it's, it's a means to an end. You want to get your nature paper is what you're going for. The sort of the R script that analyzes this, you know, the, the, the result from your, you know, telescope is like whatever. Yeah. Um, but now, no, actually in, in, in CS, especially in practical computers, computer science, especially in data systems, it is actually, is actually the case that the people that have gotten the highest honors in our field. We have two uh, Turing Award winners in, in data management systems is Jim Gray and uh, Michael Stonebreaker. They both have created actual systems. And I know them. It, do you know them? Well, what um, I know the systems? Yeah, 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 Postgres. So uh, Stonebreaker oh. was one of the people behind cre- the creation of Postgres at Berkeley, know you know, way back when. Right. Um, and, and they have gotten these awards, not for their, you know, Greek symbol sort of, <laughs> fighting abilities uh <laughs> but more for like you know they have actually built something so it's i think in our field and there's maybe some adjacent fields like operating systems that behave similarly like if you're an academic in operating systems it does help if you have you know made some linux kernel patches that had turned out to be good ideas like i think it helps right um if you're in security making tools is always going to get you some, some, some sort of credibility right so there's some adjacent fields but it's not very common i agree so it was always very, um, yeah, it was definitely acceptable in, in, in this subfield to write, to spend time writing software. We may have pushed this to new heights. I'm, I'm not entirely sure. But so, so when you come up with a new idea, you can write a paper about this new idea. Yes, you can build a prototype to show that your idea is a good idea. Sure. But people are only really going to take this seriously if this has like proven itself somehow in the market. Okay. Right? That's so, very unusual. To get yeah. ahead in academia, you need to push yourself out into the marketplace. It is. It is a. It is a. I think there has also historically been a lot of sort of exchange between the academic teams and the the, the, the teams in, in in industry. Like you know, like you have in AI as well. Like there's a ton of people doing cutting edge AI research at Google. They're not mm. te- technically academic uh, academic people, but they are at the same sort of level. I think in data management systems. We also have had this for a while that. The teams at like at Microsoft that built SQL Server, the teams at Oracle that built Oracle, uh, teams at IBM that built DB2, they had like a very deep sort of 
knowledge in sort of in these in these systems and there's the academics would frequently, you know, come from these teams, go to these teams, do sabbaticals there, go back and forth. So I think there has always been a pretty good exchange. But if you want industry people to, you know, take you seriously, you have to show that this can work in, in, in the marketplace. And it is a gigantic market. I think people underestimate this. Uh, so databases are sort of a trillion dollar market or something like that, right? I didn't know that, but I could believe it. Yeah. So if there is such a huge amount of money flowing or like, flying around in this in this in this world you can see how you know like if, if you want to convince somebody that something's a good idea you can show them like hey this is actually better it's going to make you more money it's like anyways there's there's always been a bit of connection but so what we the, the reason i think we started programming so much in in the institute was that we were sick and tired of the quality of research prototypes right um and we were like and we we're like okay we actually want to have impact with what we're doing and so when we started this DuckDB uh, project, we were like, you know what, we'll we'll do it, you know, for real this time. Like we will have, you know, CI on the third commit or something like that. We have, right. we'll have testing in place. We will have coverage in place. We have all these software engineering tools that are pretty standard in industry, but unheard of in academic sort of systems. We will have all that. Right, yeah. Um, and we did. And and so we we also... It's also very common academic systems to write like the prototype until it can run the benchmark. It's pretty common. <laughs> yeah. You know, you stop. Why, why would you add functionality beyond the benchmark when all you want is the, is the paper? To prove your idea, yeah. Right. Yeah. Uh, okay. But we said, no, 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 no. This needs to be able to actually uh, run uh, general purpose SQL queries. But, you know, in case I haven't said this yet, DuckDB is a SQL system. So it needs to understand the SQL language, the one that was on my license plate. The problem with SQL is that it is such a gigantically, I mean, honestly, I was totally blown away by this because I thought, ah, yeah, no, a SQL, you know, I mean, I've seen some SQL. How hard could it be TM? Like famous last words. It's like, you know, thank you, Jeremy Clarkson for this, uh, for this, uh, for this, for this meme of how hard can it be? Um, uh, and, and it's like, I was totally amazed. Like I only really learned SQL when we had to start implementing an engine that interprets SQL because people kept throwing queries at us and we were like, ooh, this is allowed. And they were like, yeah, it's in the standard. We're like, oh, okay. Yeah, I can believe that. It's like you kind of think maybe it's got 20 or 40 keywords, but I bet it's a lot more and a lot more. Like the recently, I, recently I learned something about uh, from another person that builds database systems. <laughs> I learned something about that there is something called accept all, like in SQL, we have union, and people know that there's a difference between a union, union, and all. Yes, you've heard yeah. of this difference. Yeah. It turns out the same. There's also an accept statement in in SQL with set semantics, but there's also an accept all. And I didn't know about the existence of accept all until oh, this no. other person told me about it. But Can't, sure enough, it's in the standard. Has been there since you know way back when. So we then you know we were like, fine, we'll have to implement that. So we spent a lot of time implementing this. We wouldn't have had this ambition of implementing the whole of SQL if we had just been out for a paper, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It only makes sense because we had been out to actually make a system that people use. And if you want to do that, well... You kind of got to support as you can't, well. There's mm. no shortcuts, really. Yeah. Like, there's just, just have to get through it. But did you... Okay, so you're there in academia wanting to prove something. Did you start from, this is our topic of research, let's turn this into a product? Or did you say, this is what's missing in the world, so let's research that? Yeah, I think the latter. Uh, we 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 talked to people in you know big data practitioners, and we found out that this was absolutely missing in the world. And what is this? Um, we found that 
um, nobody had really considered sort of the ergonomics of using data management system is always very complicated to set up like it was I don't know if you've ever tried to install Postgres or something, but you know you you find yourself editing like some yeah, arcane config files and rebooting services and installing services and creating database files. It's it's, it's not a very pleasant process creating users, whatever. Um, yeah. So we so one of the core sort of ideas that led to DuckDB was to say, look, there's like there's a lot of sort of stuff that happens that has that actually makes it very hard to use these systems. Like you have to, as I said, you have to do all this installation, maintenance, blah, blah. Um, nobody has really thought about data management systems with like this user sort of angle, like user in this case is like a programmer, often or an analyst, but nobody had really thought about them in like a, with like a, what's the maximum simplicity that you can get here perspective. Um, also, nobody had really thought about data management systems where Getting data in and out of them is like a first principle. Like that has to be fast. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. I've definitely dealt with plenty of systems where you get the database up and running. And then the big job is to figure out how to turn it into a schema and some insert statements. Yeah. So, well, and the CS real... getting the CSV reader to work. Like I have yeah. I've tried the CSV readers of, I don't know, 50 database systems in my life. They were all terrible, right? Um, yeah. So, so we realized that a lot of the initial sort of interaction people do with data systems is A, the setup, and B, data import and export. Um, so let's, you know, ma maybe make that pleasant. That sounds like a good idea, right? Like this, because yeah. this, is, this is like the, the, the one time you have to make a good impression. It's like in these initial steps when the people don't know a lot about your system, they've just started, they just want to get some, they would just want to play around or just want to get a job done. So we really designed this thing to be useful. So that was our academic angle he's like look we need to reimagine these systems for usability and how do, how do you mean them. that's an academic angle because it seems that seems more like a product industrial angle yeah. ux yeah this is this is true um it can be seen like that but if you think about it we actually wrote a paper about this um the 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 question is if if you start from like these user interaction principles, like what I said, needs to be easy, mm. needs to be good, have good efficiency for import and export, you can have an sort of an academic discussion on what does this mean for the construction of the rest of the system, right? So, what are the how does this impact like our canonical textbook architecture? And for example, there's one gigantic way in which it impacts the textbook architecture. The textbook architecture since like 1984 or so is this client server sort of model the two-tier system where you have yeah database client database server funky line between them right that's that's a textbook thing yeah but we realized that in order to to meet these user uh interaction and data import efficiency goals we needed to actually go to a different model which is the in-process model which is similar to what sqlite does if you if you're aware what SQL, how sqlite works generally um, yeah, it's this database as a library. You link it to your process. The thing runs in the same process. Okay, so now you're in the same process as your application. Well, that has a bunch of implications in terms of system design again, right? So, for example, you need to somehow cooperate with this application process. You can't just assume that the, this, you know, this computer is yours like typical data management systems do. Like, you have to sort of cooperate. You have to be very sort of careful in like you know using resources. You have to be careful in uh, you know how you crash. Traditionally, database systems handled fatal problems by just exiting, right? If you're an in-process system, you can't do that. 
because you bring down the host with you. So now you have to yeah. reimagine sort of fundamental properties of how we do, for example, transaction control and persistence under the, you know, the, the premise that we cannot just exit when we don't like something. Yeah, uh, yeah, it's not your environment to play with. The environment. Another super interesting aspect there is like, if like databases are used to being coddled, like database systems, like Oracle is used to be run on very, very expensive hardware with like, you know, some <laughs> sort of a, a staff of nurses sitting next to it here. <laughs> They're called DBAs, but it's the same thing, right? Um, and like they have like memory correction in memory, they have redundant power supplies, they have giant RAID arrays to deal with hard disks failing and all that stuff. Yeah. If you make like that's so they can they, they can make certain assumptions about their hardware. DuckDB is made to run like on everyone's computer, their phone. They can, you know, and it's made the, the simplicity and the way it's designed lends itself to run like everywhere on everyone's laptop, stuff like that. Um, that's a very different environment. Like one of my favorite environments is the Brazilian Windows laptops. Not nothing against the Brazilians, but they happen to occupy a warm place. Uh, <laughs> And, right. and, you know, now, now you have a laptop that's maybe a bit older, that's sitting in like tropical heat. And then now you're trying to run like a data, like serious sort of data crunching, the thing that's going to raise the temperature even further. The chances uh -huh. that your RAM starts like doing something funky goes up quite a lot. Right. Yeah. yeah I can believe. Uh, so, so there we had some issues where we were like, dude, your computer is broken. I can see from the bug report that your computer is just plain broken. <laughs> um, but then of course the next question is again, like, okay, maybe how can we cleanly deal with this? So DuckDB now has a bunch of sort of self checks that, you know, for example, make sure that the hardware is doing something meaningful. That's, right. that's, uh, that, that's, that's one. So you can have an academic, you definitely can have an academic discussion because like these, indeed, these UX kind of aspects, like you said, they, they are more traditionally more in the product space. But if you really think what that means for the rest of like this architecture that is so, um, that is so like well known or so, yeah, this follows these trodden paths where it's like you open like the thick book about databases. I can actually see it from my chair, the, the thick book. Uh, and it tells you how to implement the database system, like page 743 will tell you this is how your transaction manager works. <laughs> Which right? book is that? What's it called? It's <laughs> uh, called Database Systems. I think it's, this, uh, it's a Molina. Yeah, Molina is the author. It's a textbook. Oh. People, university students have to read it. <laughs> Poor university students. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so usability being both an important and academic concern, but let's talk about what DuckDB does technically and how it does it. I want to get down to this. Yeah. Okay, so we're running SQL queries. Yes, mm. uh, yep. if you if you strip away all the user interface stuff, you, our interface is like our our what we get is a SQL query, and now we have to come up with something called a query execution plan, mm. um, which is sort of a more sort of mechanistic description of the steps that we should do to compute the result because SQL is a declarative language. It doesn't actually tell you how to compute the result. It just, just wants you, tells you what you want. Yeah. It's the task of the SQL engine, in our case, DuckDB, to come up with an execution plan to do that as efficiently as possible. But there's some aspects to this. So the first kind of steps you do is you like, you, you try to, to bind the query to the schemas that exist and the types. And so then you know your types, you know that uh, these tables actually exist. It's a good thing. Yeah. Um, 
And then you run optimizers, like there's some static optimization that always are good ideas that you then run, like you run like a symbolic optimizer that like these things usually are shaped like trees, like you have operators stacked on operators and they can have two inputs or one input or multiple, like a, a join will have two inputs an aggregation will have one input, these kind of things, right? Like these yeah. all plug together to form your query. Optimizers will operate and then we'll say, aha, you're joining these two gigantic tables and then you're filtering a lot of the data, the resulting data out again on top here. Can I maybe move these filters into these join, into the inputs of these joins so that I don't have to create this gigantic thing only to throw it away later? Yeah. So Pretty good idea. Re rewriting. That, yes. These are yeah, rewrites yeah. That, that are like in this case of uh, projection pushdown is what we call this or selection pushdown. Um, um, these are always good ideas. So you have static rewrite rules. You also yeah. have dynamic rewrite rules um, that depend, for example, on the cardinality, the amount of rows in in tables. Now, now you have, for example, you have a join. Yeah. Say we want to do, um, you know, want to join two tables together. Typical algorithm to do is to, this is a hash join where you build a hash table on one side of the join input and then you probe the other side of the join against that hash table. Yeah. Now, cardinality of your tables tells you, okay, which table is the bigger one. And it makes sense to build your hash table on the smaller one because the hash table has to sit in memory. If you build a hash table on a 10 billion row uh, sort of table and then probe with 10 rows, that's very, very inefficient. The other way around is very efficient. So um, these are dynamic rules that then depend on properties of the actual data. Maybe they depend also on statistics like DuckDB or many other systems will know for example, what the minimum maximum value in every column is, these kind of things, right? Right. So then you have your optimized plan. That's pretty standard. The Postgres does something very similar. Like I think any database system worth anything has like an optimizer that does these things. And then you get to into the into the uh, realm of the execution. Now you have you optimized your your query your query plan. At this point, we tend to call it a logical plan. That then gets transformed into a so-called physical plan, which then says, okay, now Instead of having a join, I'm going to pick a hash join. Um, instead right. of, you know, doing a, you know an aggregate, I will do a hash aggregate. These kind of things. You pick an implementation. You have a physical plan. You go to execution. Okay, so that's where it really starts getting like interesting. So now, I should also say, it's very important, for example, that these executions are parallel, right? Like that we use with DuckDB like other database systems also in, 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 in the space of doing data analysis on large amount of rows, it's, not, it's mm. an analytical system, um, needs to parallelize queries. We, we can't avoid it. Like it used to be optional, you know, like 20 years ago, you could get, get maybe away with the database engine that was single threaded because most computers did have one core. One, yeah. <clears throat> now my stupid MacBook has like 10 cores, right? <laughs> yeah. And you need to use all of them to get in. I mean, they're, they're amazing cores, yes, compared yeah. to the one... One core they from twenty years ago. Faster, they've gone. Uh, they are crazy. Yeah, yeah. yeah I'm, 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 I'm. I was, I was blown away when this thing came out. Doesn't matter. Um, we have to parallelize over these ten cores. Okay, so then part where of the that, so out of curiosity, where does that decision happen? Is it as you're you finished optimizing and you're building the logical plan? Yeah, no. Actually, inductively, it happens during execution. Uh, I'll get to that. Okay. okay. Um, so now we need to actually uh, execute this plan in parallel. Okay interesting question like how do you automatically parallelize a Turing complete language it's not it's not is not obviously tri trivial right it's uh, yeah. okay so these are all things that have to happen and then execution will you know compute things 
and come with a result. Now, how does this work? Well, the the general general approach is that you first um, separate your query into so-called pipelines. Okay. So, okay, so if your query plan is a tree, now you look into pipelines. What are pipelines? Um, pipelines are things that can happen without um, so-called pipeline breakers. What are pipeline breakers? Those are operators where the entire intermediate result has to be assembled before things can continue. For example, say I'm aggregating, okay? I'm doing like a count star group by X or something like that, right? In, in SQL. Yeah. So now this operator can only start producing output once the entire input has been read. Right. Because, yeah. I, okay, say I pick one group to output first, the, there might be relevant data for that group in the very last input row that I read. Yeah, yeah. Or you sorting, I assume. You can't output sorting. anything until you know which the smallest row Absolutely. is. Absolutely. Yeah. Sorting is a great example as well. There's a couple of those join, jo uh, join hash table build, the hash table build of the join, also one of these things you have to read. So these are called pipeline breakers. So every time we encounter a pipeline breaker, we split the query plan up into these so-called pipelines. And pipelines means that's an it's, an, it's a bunch of operators that can read that can run from a so-called source to a so-called sync, right. in sort of in a streaming way, right? Um, so without streaming in the heart of the idea, there's yeah. streaming. There has to be because you can't you can't just like okay, I, okay. Uh, naively, uh, you could say, why would you just run one operator at a time? You produce the you take the input, you produce the output, and if the next operator runs, and so on and so forth. That's like what pandas does, for example. Um, if you if you know pandas like this Python tool to wrangle data run, and that's yeah. a terrible idea because the materialization between operators that could actually stream data through is a, is a terrible idea because it will have to materialize this stuff in memory somewhere, which creates memory traffic between your CPU and memory, um, and that will take a lot of time, and you might run out of memory, and it's generally not pleasant. Whereas you could have stayed all in the CPU, is that what you're saying? Well, whereas you could have just streamed a chunk of data to multiple operators at the same time, mm. and that indeed would be staying in the, in the CPU cache much more likely. If you look at something like Postgres, they go to the other extreme. They do like a row-by-row row thing. So Postgres reads like a row of input, applies the next operator, applies the next operator, applies the next operator, and then you know produces output or not. SQLite does the same thing. Right. And that's also, that's really great for systems that deal with small sort of result sets or small input like the transactional systems tend to do, like update and order. You don't really look at 10 billion rows, right? Yeah. But for analysis, for analysis this like switching between operators, switching across the types that could potentially exist in the query actually is, creates a lot of overhead. So therefore, we have to find some middle ground. So what DuckDB actually does is implement a so-called vectorized query execution engine. So what does this mean? We have our pipelines that are streaming. Right. Probably multiple operators in a pipeline like this, like a filter, like a you know, um, window. Some window functions could run in a streaming way. And projections can run in a streaming way. These kind of things, right? Yeah. Um, and now our, we don't do the full materialization, which would be like running one operator at a time and writing stuff with memory every single time. We don't do the postgres thing and reading one single row every single time. We do something in the middle. We take in DuckDB's case, we take like 2,048 rows, right? Just as a like experimentally found to be a good idea to have 2,048 <laughs> rows, right? Like it used to be 1,024. Eventually, as I will explain why this this number exists. Um, 
And, um, and then you basically take like a, these vectors, we call them vectors, like subsets of, of these, of these uh, intermediate results, and then we stream them through the operators. And it's important to know that this is a column-first representation, so we don't have single rows that we shove through the operators. We have like little chunks of columns that we shove through the operators. And that has big advantages because we can then have a columnar sort of processing, which allows us to be more efficient in terms of um, branch prediction, um, which is the CPU basically going, trying to figure out where your code is jumping next. Um, and it uses just a statistical model for that. And if you, are, if you do the same thing all over again, the model gets better. Um, right. And so doing, so this is actually, this is the reason why columnar representations are better in this because the branch predictor will be better at predicting where you're going next as your amount of sort of stupid repetition increases. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes right? sense. And if yeah. you had, if you did this row wise and you had to do something else for every, every sort of field, because the, the fields are different types and different things happen to them, then the branch predictor goes like, I don't know. You seem to be doing 10 different things at once. Yeah, I exactly. Yeah. A lot of things happen here. I have no idea where you're going. Yeah. So this is why doing this in a columnar way is better because the branch predictor will tell you you're going there and you will be right. Um, and if it's right, it will also do speculative execution. So the branch predictor will actually say, based on my amazing statistics, I, I'm fairly sure that you're going to go this branch. So I'm actually going to already schedule this branch for execution in my CPU. And only if I realize that I was wrong in my prediction, I will abandon all that effort and actually do the other thing. Right. So, so that's actually quite a powerful thing. So this is why we have vectorized execution. We want to be one reason why we have vectorized execution. We want to be good on this branch prediction. But the other thing, and that you, you mentioned this already, is that by controlling the amount of, like the size of the intermediates, like the size of whatever intermediate results goes between these different operators that are in a pipeline, mm. um, we can make um, the query execution stay in the CPU cache for longer and ideally forever. And that's how the, that's where the 2048 comes from, right? Because the CPU caches in modern CPUs are actually quite big. Like they don't sound big. That's like, oh, it's 32 megabytes. But 32 megabytes is quite a lot of storage. Yeah, uh, that used to be a whole computer. That used to, yes. Uh, I mean, my first computer had eight megabytes of RAM. I think my first had 512 kilobytes. There oh, you go. That sound. Like that's, you know, and now that's cache, right? Mm. That's like on-die CPU cache. And yeah. you have 32 megabytes of them. <laughs> okay. But uh, point being, by controlling the size of the intermediate with like this constant, constant like 2048, we can... Um, yeah, keep keep this stuff in the CPU cache. And why is that yeah. important? It's because of the memory hierarchy. Like as the the, the storage this has this whole hierarchy, we have the cache sitting on top. Actually, on very top sits a CPU register. That's the fastest thing. It's one cycle to access. Very nice. Yeah. Um, and then you have the caches, and then you have main memory, and then you have storage, and you have tape, and you have internet or whatever, right? <laughs> uh, tape's still a thing. Really? Yeah, people, it's the, cheap, the it's cheapest anyway? medium to do backups on. It's it's really like tape costs nothing, right? Okay, it's just tape. I haven't I mean, seen it in a while, but I can believe. Sure. No, I think I think if you if you can actually the cloud still has it. If you use Amazon, uh, what's it called? Glacier. Yes, oh. it will be on tapes. Yes. Oh, I didn't know that was tape. Yeah, this is why it takes them four hours to get your data back because it's like, <laughs> hang on. <laughs> Anyways. We want to be up in the storage here, okay? Ideally in a register, but we do data processing. We can't be in a register, but we can be in cache. Right. Um, and by staying in cache, 
uh, we can get like a 100x kind of speed improvement on with, compared to if we had to go back to forth to memory all the time. It's actually okay. something yeah. that was invented here in Amsterdam at the CWI, oh, really? the institute that I used to work. Yeah, I told you they knew something about things. <laughs> they invented this whole vectorized query execution paradigm, specifically uh, colleagues of mine, uh, Peter Bonds, uh, Marcin Sukowski, and Niels Ness. And it's very interesting because Marcin is now one of the guys that founded Snowflake. It's like it's like there's some interesting connections in that world. Ah. And Peter Peter is a, also a professor of, of data systems here, and he's also they yeah anyways, there, there's this it's it's a very small world these data systems people. and the Amsterdam tech hub investing in people yes well investing oh. investing yeah it's just, it's a government right like it's a government agency that does this um but uh yeah anyways the vectorization that's really a key ingredient and I should notice that note that there's a, a competing approach oh okay tell yeah, me about that it's a competing approach so you can do vectorization which is what I just explained mm. or you can actually do something called JIT, uh, just-in-kind compilation. So there's also a bunch of SQL engines out there that basically ship a gigantic C compiler with them. Right. I'm not kidding. They just embed LLVM. Done. Right. Um, and then um, you could also try to com- convert your SQL query to a C program, or like assembly program, throw it into a compiler, and then run the result. That's a competing approach. Um, then you also don't get a lot of interpretation overhead like you do from like looking at the types and operations every time for every row uh, that you would otherwise get. But with the jitting, you can also basically fix that by just saying, uh, okay, we'll we'll just create a binary for this particular query. We'll compile it, a binary for one specific query. Is that then a favorable approach when you're when you tend to run the same query over and over? Yeah. Uh, well, uh, yes, that definitely helps. It does help for for um, for transactional use cases where you have a lot of prepared statements. Mm. It also helps, um, yeah, if you have very very long expression chains, things like that. The big downside, however, for jitted engines is that they have to ship the gigantic compiler with them. <laughs> um, and actually, that was one of the things that followed from our first principles that we can't do that because said, hey, look, this thing thing needs to be easy to use and easy to install. Part of that is the binary can't be like two gigabytes, but uh, <laughs> yeah, and can't depend it, on you having a certain tool chain available. It can't depend on you having LLVM with exactly the right version, by the way, installed. Because <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, um, few of us have been there. Ouch. Uh, so therefore, we couldn't use jitting. It that is one of the things that followed from our sort of high level sort of assessment of. Um, you know, what should this thing do? How should it behave? It's like, I can't use JIT because it just, it's not going to be economical. It's not going to be portable. It's not, you know, it's not going to be nice. Um, and uh, also, there is a, a research paper written by the proponents of JITing and vectorization that have essentially come together, wrote a paper proving that the approaches are essentially equivalent. So, hey. Um, uh, but, Allowing uh, for time, presumably. I'm sorry? Allowing for time. No, uh, no, no, no. At the time, yeah. uh, also equivalent as in like oh, okay, equivalent as in like um, execution performance. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Now the, the vector is the vectorization has get gets to the same sort of speeds um, if done properly. Uh, yeah. yeah so that's the, so that's so we have this vectorized thing, which is really cool. Right. So the it does make the it a bit more complicated to write these operators because now instead of like writing like an like a projection where you do an addition of two columns like a plus b you go like 
if, if you had like a transact like a simple old school system with like rows it would be pretty obvious how to write that you have like a loop and then it goes like left plus right left plus right left plus right and so on and so forth right it's what if you want to do this in a vectorized way it's like oh now all my sort of math operators actually operate on these arrays of data they're like there has to be like code being generated with templating that expands all these you know things into like loops and there's to you have to do like null handling and you have to do like all these things so you get a bit more complexity in the operators themselves yeah because you're constantly dealing with a batch of 200 and 2000 yeah you're constantly dealing with these batches right um also like if you do like an aggregation you're aggregating a thousand uh, 2048 values at the same time like that sometimes it takes a bit of sort of mental gymnastics to to do this well or like to to wrap your head around how the operator actually has to be implemented in order to be efficient when dealing with a lot of values at the same time or like an index lookup right traditionally you did like an index lookup where you have like one value you walk down your b tree there's your thing if you have 2048 search values you're like uh how do i do traverse now right like it has it has some and there must be i mean you could just do it 2048 times but there must be more efficient ways to walk down a tree there is yes you you could have 2048 pointers in the same tree because then you kind of try to reuse the same io but of course also problematic you can't have 2048 hours sending io requests blah 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 yeah (laughs) complications um But hey, people have PhDs for a reason, right? Like it's it's uh, it's uh, <laughs> yeah. we have we have done nothing else in the last ten years than to think about that. So that's that's um, that's fun. But so that's the vectorization stuff. Yeah, that does, it does slightly complicate your operators. But from a user's perspective, it's great because it yes yeah, stuff stays in cache, so it's really really fast. Um, you as a user, you don't really see that it's a vectorized system anyway. You write your SQL query and poof, out comes a result, right? Like yeah, it's a very sort of detail on how the implementation works but it is it is it is the thing that DuckDB does and it's kind of cool because i think in DuckDB, like one of the one of the unique things that we combine like this crazy academic sort of knowledge on how data systems should be built all wrapped into a package that's like try to try to be friendly and that's i think something that i don't think has been done before like as in like the, the state of the art stuff tends to be like a bit clunky to use and the stuff yeah. that's easy to use, I don't want to name names, but there are some data management systems out there that uh, try to be very easy to use, but then have like, serious issues in sort of the internals and how they deal with things like persistence, right? Because they compromise that all of that away. Yeah. Um, so we kind of have both, right? We have this like crazy core that that uh, you know is, that is that uses like really the state of the art in, in query processing uh, together with this friendly interface. But I want to talk about something else. I want to talk about parallelization. Mm, okay because that's also really 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 interesting um so parallelization many cores yeah we have um so there is an interesting paper from a one of the greats of uh of data management systems research Götz Gräfe I don't know if you have heard of him his name he's he's German like many database people I don't exactly know what it is about tables (laughs) but somehow it feels somehow it appeals to the Germans um but uh (laughs) no comment um it, it, it's it's, it's minds yeah I yeah can. it's it's really uncanny how many how many germans are and it's like you go to the us you know it's like oh also german person aha um not only of course don't get me wrong it's there's many 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 different sort of people working together it's just it's an uncanny amount of germans and there are more than there should be 
Okay. Um, anyways, um, so Götz Gräfe, uh, one of the greats, uh, he wrote a paper in like the 90s or something like that about, um, uh, it's called Volcanoes, the Volcano Query Processing or something. Uh, volcanoes in the title. You will find it if you go for that. I'll um, in the show notes when I And find in it. this paper, he also described how to do parallelization. Um, right. And to put it, and and so that's actually, as I said, it's a it's a different it's a difficult problem. You come up with you have your query plan, mm. and now you want to run this on many on many CPUs. What do you do? Well, uh, Doctor Grefe, he um, he came up with this idea of the exchange operator based parallelism. And it, it, at the time, it was very clever because it is a par- it's a, a way of doing parallelism that um, doesn't impact the other operator's implementation at all, which is great, right? If you okay. want to get something done, it's great if you don't have to throw your rest of your system away. Like that's yes. that's uh, yeah. it's always good if you want to get something through. Like here's this cool idea, and by the way, it works with what we have. So what? Right. How does this work? Okay. Yeah. Exchange, but by the way, DuckDB is not using that. It's just what everybody else is using. <laughs> um, and I'm going to say why it's bad in a second. But so exchange op- exchange exchange based uh, parallelism works like this. Say we have a filter, yeah, and we want to parallelize the filter. Okay, yeah. So now we insert this special operator under the filter that splits up the incoming data stream into, let's say eight data streams yeah okay into eight data streams you can kind of hang on i have too many fingers this is eight yes yeah um and now you run this filter on every one of these eight data streams in parallel haha yeah (laughs) and then you set another put another operator on top that collects all the output of those filters back into a single data stream Mm -hmm. and now you have successfully parallelized this filter okay this sounds like MapReduce. Aha, yes. Uh, it does, it does, it, it, I mean, MapReduce came much later, of course. So uh, okay. who, who got this from whom is, uh, is, is, is it's pretty clear in this case. Okay. Point, point being, okay, this works really great for a filter. Yes? Mm. Yeah, what about yeah. an aggregation now? How does this work? Because obviously I can't just use my little distribution operator to have eight input streams, run my aggregation on all of these eight, and then just glue together the result again, right? You can if it's sum, it's a little trickier if it's average, that kind of thing. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you can do that, but then you have to actually reinterpret the results. You have to then remap the groups together after all these operators. Right. Um, and there can be millions. So then you've lost, then you've spent a lot of time on the remapping. So that's really not the point. Right. Okay. So what this exchange-based operator parallelism does is it introduces a hash partitioning on the group key in the distribution operator saying, aha, if I hash the group key in the distribution phase already and I do a radix partitioning based on bits in the hash um, between all these eight data streams that I'm creating in my, in my distribution operator, then do the aggregation, and then I can be sure that I can just glue all these results together again, and the result will be semantically correct because... You know, yeah, we, we can prove that only data that matches like from this hash partition went into this one group by operator. And so you're saying if I'm doing uh, select some average of something group by user, you're yeah. going to hash the user ID and yes. chuck yes. Same, yeah, and, chuck the same and split it up ID like that. Yeah, buckets. exactly. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So that's how it works, right? This is also how the joins work. They will say, aha, 
we'll we'll you know we'll split both the build and the probe side of the join using the same hash partitioning and then we can run this in, in parallel and then we can do the recombination and everyone's happy well there's some there's one there's there's some issues with with this um and can you spot any issues already um i would have thought like if you're trying to split it up into eight chunks going to disk then you've got a big problem you're basically still you're reading the disk it's going to be hard to parallelize pulling out the different bits of disks and then repartitioning them into different groups, right? Yes, but it doesn't have to go to disk. This is like a stream thing, right? Like so, it, as the data on the fly, it can do this partitioning. Oh, okay, so it's okay. Streaming in batches. It, okay. it, it doesn't have to. Yeah, yeah, it's streaming. Okay. The, okay, so there's two two main issues with this. One is uh, the 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 fairness of the um, the fairness of the um, the partitioning. Okay, so data. Doesn't give that doesn't isn't isn't nice enough to be sort of uniformly distributed across all dimensions. Yeah, right. So what happens now is like what happens if my group key is like highly skewed. Like I have ten billion rows with the same group key, and then I have ten billion rows, but they all have different group keys. Yeah, yeah. Plenty um, of businesses have a few users that heavy hitters problem. I, I like to call yeah. it a Justin Bieber problem. Like every. Like, like everything is, you know, like if you could look at like social networks, they're all like following on these like massive nodes that have a lot of connections. Same problem. So if you now do a hash partitioning on those, what happens is that one of your cores will be very busy with the heavy hitter because one of them is unlucky to get the, the hash partition where the one the heavy hitter sits in. Yeah. And, and the all the other ones are sitting, sitting there. Around yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? Or yeah. doing something, but but obviously the runtime of the biggest partition will determine the end-to-end runtime of this query. Yeah. Like so, skew is really terrible here because skew kills the fairness in distribution. The other thing that's really terrible is it's not reactive. Once I start partitioning this into eight partitions, I am doomed <laughs> to keep partitioning this till the query is completed because I cannot just change my mind and do fewer partitions because my downstream operators don't know about this. That this is going on in the first place because yeah i've tried to avoid rewriting them um and therefore you know it's i cannot really change my mind usually the exchange-based parallelism is baked into the query plan so they actually have an, a step that takes the physical plan inserts these operators that split up and recombine split up recombine um and yeah and it's it's really it's really problematic for skew and you know, just reactivity reasons. So is that like if I've got 10 million rows and the first million are skewed quite differently to the last million? That, but also something like, oh, say a second query is coming. I can't just hog all the cores while I'm processing the first one. Second one will have no resources to use. Maybe I actually want to go down with the number of cores that I'm using for the first query because now I want to distribute my resources. Oh, in. I see. Yeah, it's actually one of the issues that's really plaguing Spark. I don't know if you have experience with Spark. Regrettably, I have tons of experience with Spark. <laughs> um, Apache Spark, um, and they they use exchange. They they just implemented Goetz's paper, right? They use exchange parallelism, but as a result. Spark classes are sometimes used by multiple people, but if the if like somebody gets lucky and grabs all the cores for his query or her query, um, the second guy or girl coming with another query has no, has to wait till the thing's finished because this just the oh. they have baked in this parallelism in the query plan. And they're waiting for the whole thing to end, and it might be that seven of the cores are idle anyway. Yeah, well, well you, you don't know, right? 
Um, so you could, there's some ways of fixing this with like over committing and blah, 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 but you could also abort the query and redo your partitioning. They'll ignore all of this now. Um, so this is why the state of the art isn't this system anymore. Instead, we use something else. We use morsel driven parallelism. Now, how does this work? Morsel? Morsel. Yes. So there's another paper at VLDB, uh, the very large database conference, uh, that explains how that works. Um, where we basically say, hey, this idea from Guts from the 90s, try to avoid redoing the operators for good reasons. Yeah. Maybe that we can, we can now start hacking these operators and we can avoid all these problems that come from this operator unaware parallelism scheme. Like the operator doesn't know about parallelism in, in, the, in, the, in the exchange-based system. In morsel driven, the operators do know. So I already told you how the operators become more complicated because they have to be vectorized. Yeah. We're adding a whole level of complexity now to, to make them parallelism aware now, which makes it even harder to write these operators, okay? <laughs> um, but for good reasons, because of what morsel driven parallelism does, it says, look, we will not bake these extra operators into the plan to make parallelism. We will actually make the plan itself parallelism aware. And this comes back to the, um, the pipelines I mentioned earlier. The pipelines are streaming from a source to a sink. Sources know now can now basically split up their, their source into multiple chunks, but not with any lot of logic. They can use whatever partitioning scheme they want. They can just say, you know what, the first 10 million rows go here, the second 10 million rows go there. This is, it really okay. it's really not doesn't it doesn't doesn't it doesn't matter anymore. You just like if you do a table scan from disk, you will look at your metadata and say, aha, I have ten thousand blocks, so I guess the first thousand go to core one, the second thousand blocks go to core two. Right. And now we've lost this partitioning scheme that the previous method relied on, right? Yeah. Okay. So which means that we have some semantics issues in our operators. However, only blocking operators have these semantics issues because they have this whole data set view, like a group by, like a sorting and so on. Yeah. So now okay. those are the ones that have to be adapted to basically be able to work with multiple streams of data from multiple pipelines that run in parallel coming into an aggregate, for example, at the same time. And then this operator, this aggregate operator, this parallelism aware operator needs to know how to reconcile this. And in the case of the, the hash that you can imagine that, you know, you're building more hash tables, you're trying to figure out which data is in which sort of group, you're trying to add a secondary sort of recombine phase, like you just said earlier. So all yeah. sorts of tricks you can pull. It doesn't make the thing more complicated, but there's a great upside because there's no longer a fairness issue. If, um, you know, we can have N threads working on this and they're just grabbing subsequent, subsequent tasks from these sources. And if you want to have you know, n minus one task uh, threads working on this. We'll just wait till one of them is done, and we'll do have the thread to something else, and nothing bad happens. Like okay. it's no longer this stream that has to do right. Like it's to be orchestrated to run in parallel for it to work. It's like it's more like a list of tasks that you sort of go through. And how many threads go? The more threads go through these tasks, the better. But it's no longer like no, it has to be eight, and they have to be running at the same time. Right. Similarly, yeah. is, it fair, hmm? right, is it that the source is can dynamically react as it's splitting up that disk? It, it, no, it will just generate a bunch of tasks and the, the worker threads will grab those tasks. Oh, I see. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. 
Um, secondary, we had this fairness issue with, with the Bieber problem, like with the, with the high, hit, high hitter group. That's no longer an issue because it means, yes, one of your threads will be uh, like, first of all, we don't have these all in the same thread, all these groups in the same thread. This is the problem of the upstream operator. Um, and if one thread takes a little bit longer than another, not everybody else is blocked because they can they can go and fetch the next task already. Like and be like, if this guy takes a bit longer, whatever, right? right? So you can just grab another task while this guy is still doing this thing. Okay. Yeah. So this is it's it's very elegant. Um, it's very elegant to use this morsel based parallelism. Um, it yeah, it, it's very yeah, it's a very sort of effective way of doing parallelism. And the result is that DuckDB can basically parallelize arbitrary queries over all the cores that you have. You can also tell it to use fewer cores. It can dynamically react to say, oh, now we have two queries running. We probably shouldn't give all the resources to the first query, but maybe we should give some resources to the second query as well. Like all these things become possible. Um, and the only cost, quote, quote, is, uh, is of course, to the poor people that have to implement this. So some of, <laughs> <coughs> some of the people in the company here that, um, or myself, I've done this too. Yeah. Now I have to implement operators that are aware of parallelism, aware of this morsel-driven scheme. Well, this is the whole point of uh, getting a database engine so you can force other people to do the really hard computer science for you, right? This is indeed, indeed. It's it's like I mean, it's the same with lots of CS, right? Like I mean, if you if you look at how how the CPU works or how the operating system works or how your you know your phone works, the baseband in your phone works. A lot of a lot of really really hard complexity is hidden from people behind like somewhat efficient user interfaces. Um, in databases, this is the same, right? Like we do all this crazy stuff, um, and these are just two examples. There's more crazy stuff happening, of course. Um, uh, that that so in the end, the user just goes it goes and types a query, and the thing, you know, will will process this in in, in as, as fast as as short a time as possible. Using these crazy tricks to get your CPU like to be you know to be as efficient as possible on this it's it's quite interesting like you're, you're you're kind of yeah you're trying to wrap the ugly parts kind of to to hide them from from users but like I mean this these two these two things they're the the, the vectorized query processing and the model parallelism they're kind of they're really fundamental let's say to the whole thing um, yeah. I would say those are like those characterized like how the system works it's in interesting way. how I mean, the strategies involved are familiar, even if the domain isn't. So the idea of splitting things up into medium-sized batches and stream processing them where possible, and the idea of um, of rather than having a really dynamic scheduler or something, you just have chunks of tasks to be dealt with as they come in. Yeah. I mean, those are familiar outside of the database world. Yeah, no, absolutely. Really, absolutely, yeah. there, there's... Uh... Um, absolutely. I think, I think one of the complexities in database world compared to, um, say like, you know, other systems that, that support exposing this, you mentioned like MapReduce in the olden days, there was, <laughs> there was Hadoop, uh, you know, yes. to, to everybody's great, uh, you know, you know, great entertainment. It was uh, pioneering. Let's say that. Oh. For it. <laughs> um, I think the difference of data of, of, of data, like SQL databases is that there is this crazy complex language that people throw uh, at us like this is it's pretty obvious to do this like in a in a, in a straightforward query like you know select blah from the group by bar like you can draw this on a, i can draw this on a whiteboard explain this to students 
mm. or DuckDB users. Um, once this becomes like, you know, 15 joins deep, uh, various aggregation levels, you know, window Nested functions. Subqueries. Yeah. Nested yeah. subqueries, a good one. Yeah, yeah. We mm. actually we actually have um, implemented another paper from a group from Munich, by the way. Uh, we have we have colleagues from Munich, uh, also academics that also, by the way, also work on actual systems. Uh, the, the team that is behind Hyper and Umbra, Professor Neumann and his team, they've written a bunch of great papers on, on how to solve uh, some of these really ugly issues, specifically one around um, uh, nested subqueries. Okay. Uh, that's, that's something that that's something that, um, that uh, one of, one of my co the co-creator of DuckDB, Mark Asfeld, who's uh, sitting next to me here, um, he, he at some point disappeared for a couple of months with this paper and uh, reappeared, uh, reappeared only when subqueries were kind of solved. And it's to this day, it's like, it's still, it's still, uh, I still have my, high, my highest respect for, for Mark for pulling this one off because like subquery unnesting is one of these things that, you know, like three people in the world know anything about, you know what I mean? Like there's this yeah. guy, there's Professor Neumann in Munich is Mark. And maybe one other person that understands this, yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, it is fun, right? Like you're like because because usually people don't do this. Like, and Postgres, by the way, cannot do it. They cannot unnest subqueries. Why not? Because nobody has ever bought at Postgres has ever bothered to implement Professor Neumann's seminal papers, unnesting <laughs> arbitrary subqueries, okay. right? Like it's it's there. It's just very difficult. Uh, but once you've done it, you have no more, like the nested subqueries actually disappear in your execution, which is great. Like that's, that's like a, that's like a factor 10 million, uh, query speed up right there because you don't, instead of sort of having to do this dumb re-execution of your nested queries for every row, yeah. um, you actually turn it into a join or an aggregate and that's it. Like I can recommend if somebody, if somebody has a lot of time on their hands, I can recommend reading this, uh, this unnesting paper. Oh yeah. I bet that's. I bet that's quite easy in the simple case, but getting it to be semantically sound in the complex cases. Yes. And yeah, it, it, they actually can prove they can do it in all cases. And it's exactly what you want because then you can throw away your other implementation. Right. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It's like you want, you want to be able to like, opt optimize all of them away. Um, yeah. yeah. So, so there's, there's a lot of these things. There's also, there's also like uh, fun stuff around like window functions that like nobody, like you have you heard of window functions in SQL, right? Like this, this yeah, idea yeah. that, you can look around a bit, or you can also say, you know, like let's add up the previous two and the following two rows and things like that. Like normally uh, yeah. in SQL, that would be like four self joins or something like that. It wouldn't be yeah. pretty. So you, um, can, um, you can take the difference between this one and that one. And finally, what we all want to do, differentiation in the database. Yes, uh, <laughs> exactly. Um, well, what people do with this thing is really beyond me. I mean, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm remaking database systems. What people do with it is entirely different. <laughs> we talk to people. Talk, yeah. We, we, we want to know. We want to know what they do with it because, you know, we want to see something. But, like, sometimes what ends up on our issue tracker is like, what? Okay. Um, but to come back to window functions, um, they, this is also one of these things, right? Like, if you, there is maybe, I don't know, 10 people out there that know how to efficiently implement window functions. And because, yeah, usually your database does it for you, but if you're the if you're the person that has to write this thing, um, it's it's not it's not going to be pretty because you're suddenly very very alone, um, yeah. and and you're very grateful if somebody and in this in, in this in this example also the Munich group has written a paper eventually. Um, you're very grateful if some crazy academic out there 
um, actually wrote down what it takes to do this efficiently. Like that, that's yeah. something that we're really also really grateful for standing on the shoulders of giants, like people here in Amsterdam that we, you know, learned everything about vectorized query execution from people from Munich that we learned everything about unesting subqueries from like that's, it is a big advantage of being in the research community of just knowing where to look, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, and having a bunch of people that have not only done the work for you, but proved it's going to work. Well, I haven't, they haven't done the work for you. Okay. Um, they, they, they don't publish code that you can, like code, <laughs> transferring code between database systems is, is really not happening a lot, right? Like nobody, nobody has, I mean, nobody's going to copy paste the optimizer from, from Postgres into MySQL no, or something no. like that. It's just not going to work, right? You Perhaps have to reimplement it. have done the thinking work for you. They have done, they have definitely done the work and, and they have bothered to write it down. Like, I think, I think a lot of, and it's not going to be a pattern, like when Oracle does something like that, it's, it's complicated enough. It usually ends up in a pattern and you can't touch it, right? Like it's, uh, when somebody writes a research paper, it's, it's, uh, it's very, it's, it's a very, uh, it's, it actually helps other people. But as I said, like building these kind of systems, you end up being alone a lot. Like you are like being the first person to come in across this problem ever. And, or like in recorded history or something, like you have no, there's nobody else you can ask, right? It's not like, like with this, like with this computer that had a password on it. There's nobody you can ask. Yeah, but that's, uh, the, that's the joy of academia, right? The, the worst situation is I can't find a single problem that hasn't already been solved. Yeah, I'm, I'm always, I'm all, I have a bit of a rant about that. So, <laughs> so um, the, especially the Greek department, like the, the people with the symbols, yeah, right. um, yeah. they are masters at like inventing problems. Um, and then solving them and then there's a paper and then like everybody goes like clap, 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 clap. Um, but in our field, like it, it always bothers me when people kind of design, um, you know, in, into thin air or it design based on sort of imaginary problems because there's so many actual problems in data out there. Like so many, so many people are struggling so hard to, to process data to like, if you look at, if you look at what people are using out there, like People are in, on pandas, you know, like they're, they're running pandas, which is this, you know, I mentioned it earlier. It is this full materialization query engine from like, you know, state of the art of maybe mid nineties or something like that. Right. Like it's, it's not great, but it's the only thing people have. And then, and then when the academics who actually know something, you know, know better how to build these things, then decide to throw symbols around and, or decide to design something for imaginary use case. Um, then yeah. it bothers me because it's like, look, we have all these people out there on, on pandas. Can I just do something for them? It's actually a, again, the, our Turing Award winner, Professor Stonebreaker, he's at MIT. Um, he has uh, coined uh, the term of solving the whales problems. The whales um, problems. The whales problems. Uh, whales being like Google and Facebook and, you know. Oh, um, yeah, yeah, right. And, 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 and I think as an academic, it's actually quite criminal to solve the whales, to try to solve the various problems, because a the whales don't care. They have clever people. We worked with some of the people at like Facebook, Google, and they are clever people. Yeah, you know they don't need us to solve their problems. Um, they will ignore solutions that we have come up with anyway. Yeah, um, and now we, here we are spending like tax money on solving Google's problems. Like, what what is this saying? Like, what is what what is the what is the sort of the you know the moral story here? Uh, I, have, I have another example, like. When we started DuckDB, we said, okay, you know, distributed query processing, the topic I got my PhD in mm. is not going to be something that we're going to do because it's absolutely idiotic to start throwing distributed systems at like 
99% of data problems. But that's not an acceptable view in academia because they say, yeah, but Google has all these big data sets. Like, well, how can your solution be relevant and meaningful and sort of valuable if it doesn't solve the one percenters problem? But our right. point was to say, look, if the 99% are still sort of on pandas, clearly, you know, it, it, something needs to be done. So we, yeah. so we were always saying like, no, we're not going to touch distributed systems. Um, and it, it, in my opinion, it was the right call because the computers get so fast, you know, you can easily go terabyte data processing on your MacBook these days. It's, um, and in, in my, and there's also this interesting effect that I've noticed is that hardware scales big, faster than data sets because the humans scale slower than hardware. So we, <laughs> we, you know, we have, we have like a natural limit on monkeys hitting like keyboards, right? right. <laughs> An amount of meaningful, valuable data we can produce is just limited by the amount of people that we have. We have 8 billion, seems like a lot. Yes, or nine. I don't know. Actually, I don't know the number. Do you know? Yeah, it's, it's eight to nine billion. Eight yeah. to nine. Yeah. It's not going to be 20 billion next year, but the MacBook is going to be twice as fast next year. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, so, the, so actually many data problems are actually just eaten up by hardware, right? Uh, and then so so spending all a lot and, and and you have to you have you have no idea how much sort of brain time and sort of thinking time went into distributed query processing was like aha clearly the data problem is going to be so big that you know we have to have multiple computers that, and this was true you know if you're Google sure I believe you you have your search index is gigantic yeah. Yeah, yeah. you need this but then you have people that you know are getting paid very well to to deal with this and I don't. I don't have to spend my time on this. At the same time, if I can show that, you know, any meaningful data set that people see in their world fits on a MacBook, I want to, uh, that's where I want to be. That's just my, that's just my ethos as a, as a researcher paid with public money. You know I mean? It's like, it's. Nice uh, to see. I, I often think like industrial programmers often complain that there's nothing new in programming since the seventies. And I think, well, it's because we're not looking. There's that bridge from in this industry to academia isn't there. There are new ideas, and we're not implementing them. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's it's a fun it's a fun problem. But uh, yeah, it's uh, one of these one of these uh, things that that I'm I'm sometimes wondering what, what why funding agencies, for example, don't mandate something like this. Like, you, there are enough problems out there. Just look at them. Yeah. it's like just look at the world. I no shortage of problems in the world. No, uh, we just picked one, and then uh, you know. <laughs> Hey, it's really annoying to process data. Like, if we, in that case, perhaps I'll feel better about pulling out to my specific use case of DuckDB, and we can talk about sure. that quickly to end. So, I've I started using it. Uh, I found DuckDB on the recommendation of a friend of mine because I have a bunch of modestly large JSON files that I wanted to do queries on, yeah. and had faced that I could use Postgres or SQLite, and it's not that hard to create a schema that matches the JSON and all the da 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 da. But then I just chucked it into. I didn't even chuck it into DuckDB. I did select star from JSON file name, and it yep. just works. Yep. And that rate, firstly, that raises um, applause, <laughs> making it that usable. But then I'd like to know what's going on under the hood for that. Is it actually? Is it parsing the? Is it creating a schema? Is it creating a temporary schema table? Is it doing optimizer stats on that to make the yeah. query? What's it doing? Uh, yes, uh, that's uh, it's great. Uh, this works with JSON files, works with CSV files, it works with Parquet files, it works with a bunch of other stuff. 
Works with this um, Excel, doesn't it? Can you? Do uh, it? Yeah, I think somebody made a plug. I, it's crazy. Some, I don't. I don't see everything happens in DuckDB anymore. But like, um, so with the JSON files, uh, what happens is okay. Uh, you say select star from. By the way, select star is optional. You can just say from JSON file in DuckDB now. Okay. Um, yeah, uh, we have blog posts on friendlier SQL where we innovate the language just to you know make it ha- make people happier. Um, okay. So so if you say select star from from JSON file, what will happen is that our uh, query um, analyzer will say okay from file name, I would expect a table name there. I do not know such a table. Therefore, I'm going to do what we call a fallback scan, where we look for other things that could potentially be treated as a table. In this case, it finds, it, it, it will go through various sort of extensions. We'll say, does the file name end in parquet? No, it ends in JSON. Aha. Let's ask our JSON reader to look if, look if, this, if it potentially can read this file. What does the JSON reader do? Yeah. It will open the file and see if this file exists. If it exists in the JSON file, it says, I can do this. Then um, in, the, in the binding phase, I mentioned this earlier, is the phase where we collect the types and the, um, the data column names and the table names and all set for our query. We will actually run code that will try to create a temporary schema for your JSON file. And so that will, that will there's, I think, I think by default, it will sample your JSON file and not because it can be gigantic and you don't want to read the whole thing, blah, blah, okay. blah. Um, not entirely sure. I didn't write the JSON reader. Um, but it will, it will generate this temporary schema for you. And then basically the names will be, from, from looking at the file, it will know the names. It will know the, uh, you know, the, the types. Okay, this is an int, this is a string, this is a timestamp or whatever JSON yeah. has. Um, and then, so then with that information, it can resolve the rest of the rest of the query. So if you say, select star from JSON file where A is 42, it will say, aha, is A a field in this file? Yes, it is because it just generated a temporary schema. The binder will be able to use this in the, resolving the rest of the query. And then uh, during query execution, actually no dedicated importing step happens. What happens is that we do a streaming read on the file directly and we treat it like as if it were a table. Like DuckDB has this this notion of treating a lot of things like they were tables, like also stemming from, by the way, this whole integration, the same process kind of idea, because we realize that once we're in the same process, we can treat a lot of things that exist in this process like if they were tables. For example, if you're in Python, you can treat like a pandas data frame as if it were a table and just query it directly. Okay. Um, so in this case, JSON, it treats as a table. There's code in DuckDB that essentially can read a bunch of bytes from the JSON file, emit the vector chunk, you know, intermediate thing that the rest of the stack can understand. And it all happens sort of dynamically and and that temporary schema is only lives as long as the query lives. Okay. Like it, and if it's if it's sampling, then you don't need to read the whole file multiple no. times before you can start the work. No, I think you can make it to read the whole file because sometimes JSON files are very irregular, but very, very often they're also very regular, right? Like yeah, yeah. the sadness about JSON files sometimes is that they are indeed exported from relational databases only to be <laughs> yeah. read back into relational databases. It's a... It can, there's only one thing that can go worse there, which is like if somebody does this with XML files, but that's a, hopefully, <laughs> yeah. hopefully, hopefully, you know, in the, in I won't, the, in the I won't criticize Jason too much because it's a miracle we managed to mostly agree on a universal file. No, no, I'm, right? J- I'm, I'm not, I'm not against Jason. I just said like, Jason is fine. I'm, I'm happier with Jason than with XML. Yeah. Um, and this, but this works with, with lots of file formats. Like we can do, as I said, parquet files, 
Um, Does it do something similar for the uh, for the optimization phase? I mean, you've got to gather some. Do you sample some statistics from the top? Uh, of the no, file? actually, we can't because the statistics we have have to be exact um, or at least out of bounds. So, for example, if we want to, um, if we can, we want to do some static proving that filter can never be true. So, if you say select star from JSON file where a is bigger than forty two, our optimizer normally would say, "Let me look at the min max statistics." Um, if A is never bigger than 42, I can just remove this filter entirely and return an empty set and be like, right. done. Uh, this is the fastest query ever. I can statically prove there cannot be a result based on the available statistics. Okay. We do that. Uh, in the JSON case, we don't. Um, we don't have the statistics. The, operator, the optimizer can work without those statistics. Um, and then it will just have, um, yeah, it, it, won't, it won't be able to do these kind of optimizations. If you want these kind of optimizations to be done, you have to copy the JSON file into an internal table, and then it will have all this information. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, DuckDB has a really, also really great support for nested types like you know repeating fields, structured fields, these kind of things. So these go natively into columns in our background storage. They're compressed. Like it works pretty well. Um, there are file formats like Parquet um, that do have statistics, and if they if, if Parquet files have in their metadata things like min-max statistics and a null count and things like that. Right. And we do use those if they're a present. So in a parquet file, if you did this thing where A is bigger than 42, and we can, based on the metadata, derive that there cannot be any value that matches this criterion, we will also just be like, done. Um, mm. So that's that's um, that depends on the input format. If You can actually write your own plugin. I was so going to ask. Yeah. yeah. So if you have, if you have, you know, if you have a data like format out there that we don't support yet, DuckDB has this concept of plugins, or we call them extensions, that can provide their own scan functions, we call them. And so those scan functions can be up, it's just whatever you want them to be. Um, and they have to basically do two things. They have to be able to ger generate this temporary schema based on some input, right? like the binding, what I was said earlier. And they have to be able to read this thing and produce our intermediates from this input, like our column format or our column chunk format with the 2048 uh, okay. values in it. So I and could if, uh, I could create my own plugin that read Apache HTTP log files. Yes, absolutely. Um, although um, our CSV reader would probably be uh, okay at reading those, we have I think we have the world's most advanced CSV reader. We actually have a PhD in computer science. Does nothing else than work on our PhD uh, on our CSV reader. <laughs> Again, not because we love CSVs. We actually don't, and he doesn't. He's quite miserable sometimes. Um, <laughs> But because we realize it's the first thing people do with the data system is they throw a bunch of CSV files at it, right? Yeah. So, so because of that, you, you, want, you need this to be good and you need it to be fast. I mean, you want it to be fast. You care yeah. about this sort of thing. Um, You've got to meet where they are. I yeah. Like yeah. The world, world runs on a bunch of CSV files. Who am I to, you know, who am I to? I can, I can, I can whine about this on Twitter, but like who's helped by that? I can also be like, right, you know. Uh, get to work. Um, yeah. yeah, that's well. Nice. Yeah. Glad to hear it worked for work you. On, yeah, it really is. So, thank uh, you very much for taking me through how it works. A pleasure, Chris. Oh, cheers, Hannes. I'll see you again. Thank you. Thank you, Hannes. And I'd like to dedicate this whole episode to Hannes's dad for selling his son a bricked computer. Uh, I'm all for teaching your kids to be independent problem solvers, and I think we've just seen the fruits of doing that. But Brick's computer, that is a next level move. Good parenting, Hannes' dad. <laughs> 
If you would like some more next level moves and next level ideas of a different kind, have a look in the show notes. You'll find links to all the papers that Hannes mentioned. And if you'd like something a bit more accessible to go and play with, have a look at DuckDB at duckdb.org. They're not sponsoring this. It's just very quickly found a useful place in my toolbox. So thumbs up from me. Go kick the tires on it. Before you go and kick, take a moment to click the like, rate, share buttons. I live for the brain food of these podcasts and the interesting conversations I have. But I also live by a bit of feedback. So if you leave some, thank you very much. And make sure you're subscribed because we'll be back next week, of course, with another great mind from the software world. I've been your host, Chris Jenkins. This has been Developer Voices with Hannes Mulleisen. Thanks for listening.